excited for him to be here uh, to let y'all be encouraged and get in on some of the stuff that he's got to teach. He uh, is from the Highland Church of Christ in Columbia, and I'll let him kind of talk a little bit more about himself. But as we begin, I got another buddy, Doug Gregory, here from Westside Congregation in Elkton. I met him through preaching school, and for a lot of years he went to Burger, right? And so he's going to open us up in prayer, and then we'll begin. Thank y'all very much. Well, good morning. <laughs> I'm glad to be back. I enjoyed being with you uh, last, was it a year ago, year and a half ago? No, a year ago, because you're about to do your youth rally again. And I had the blessing of being here and uh, being a part of that and being a part of your uh, adult class. And I just had lunch with Craig Evans yesterday, and he's excited to come out and be a part of it this year for you. I got to tell you, I, I really enjoyed my experience here last year, and I'm extremely impressed with this congregation. Some uh, incredible things are going on here, and uh, I know that you're excited about it. I got to tell you, I love Matt. <laughs> Matt, I uh, have had the privilege of uh, teaching at the Nashville School of Preaching uh, for about 16 years, and Matt's one of my all-time favorite people that I ever got to meet as a part of uh, being a part of that. Uh, part of the reason, he, he's blushing maybe a little bit, I don't know, but uh, part of the reason is because of his infectious attitude. Uh, he's just a joy to be around. Every time you see him, he's always filled with joy, which I don't know if you realize or not or remember, is the number two thing on the list of the fruit of the Spirit. That's actually something that we as Christians ought to be very conscious of obeying, is to be joyful Christians, and Matt definitely, I think, uh, exudes that but also because he's got a tremendous passion for the gospel of Christ. And I appreciate that as well. And I think that is very evident in the congregation with the great things that you all are doing. Uh, so I'm glad to be here. Hey, if you've got your Bible this morning, let's open it up to Ephesians chapter 5 as we do a little work together in the Word of God. Uh, in a sense, worshiping God through the Word of God. And we're going to start out this morning with, uh, I'm just going to be honest with you on the front end. It's going to be a little bit of a difficult lesson. And the reason why is because I didn't come here today to give you, you know, 12 points about marriage or, you know, uh, you know, just some kind of pop psychology. I came here today to give you the Word of God. And, and, and it's my belief that it's the Word of God which changes and transforms people as they encounter it. And so what I want us to start out with is a very challenging message from the Apostle Paul on the subject matter of marriage. 
as we think about Paul's perspective on marriage. I just preached on the family uh, back in February, as you well know, February 14. Uh, our culture tends to think a little bit about romantic love at that time of year. And I can remember, and I want to start out with this, I remember us uh, driving around Columbia, and as I was doing that, uh, that week, as we were heading into February 14, they were talking on the radio about how February 13 is actually a uh, little, 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 little bit of a secret. It's actually known as Mistress's Day. And I heard them say that on the radio, and I thought, this has got to be a joke. This, this, cannot be, this cannot be a real thing. But they were talking about the fact that the day before Valentine's Day actually tends to be the day when more private investigators are hired, more delivery of packages are tracked and followed, phone calls are listened into. They said that this is actually a huge business boom day for private investigation because it's it's actually secretly known as Mistress's Day. That's just a little hint into things in our culture that are broken when it comes to the idea of marriages. 3,200 divorces will happen on Monday alone. 3,200, think about that, 3,200 times a judge's gap will hit and a divorce will be declared. Today, one-fourth of all babies are born out of wedlock to cohabiting couples. Out of every 12 marriages, four will fail, six will stay together but report that they're not happy, and only two will self-report that they feel like they are a complete marriage. Something is broken in our society today. Had a, a gentleman in our congregation, he just celebrated with his wife, 50 years of being married. I'm sure you probably got a few of those here in this congregation. Man, that's astonishing in this day and age. It's something really worth celebrating. And I went to him and I asked him this question, what's the secret to being married for 50 years? And, and no lie, this was his answer, don't get a divorce and don't die. <laughs> I, <laughs> thank you for that advice. I'm sure there's a little more to it. When couples encounter some kind of difficulty, the reality is they make one of two choices. Either they bond together and work as a team to forge forth and make a success out of this broken relationship, or they turn on each other. And too many people in our day and age are turning on one another. So I really commend you for offering this, for being here today. This is a very needed Subject: We live in a world right now where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And our culture is suffering as a result of it. I have three daughters. Uh, I'm, I'm in deep mourning because I now have a 14 and a 13-year-old. So I have two teenage daughters. My youngest is nine years old. So there will come a day when, when I have three teenage daughters in the house at the same time and I'm furiously trying to build a cave in the backyard so I can have some respite but I love I love the perspective of kids and uh, I, I came across this little article kids on marriage when they asked how do you decide who to marry one little boy age eight he says you uh, flip a nickel 
Heads means you stay with him. Tails means you try the next one. How do you decide who to marry? Alan, age 10, says you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) Kristen, age 10, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you got to find out later who you're stuck with. How about that language? Cam, age 8, says the right age to get married is 23. By then, you know them forever. What a perspective on age. Uh, what is, uh, well, I'm not moving forward. There we go. What's the right age to get married? Freddie, age six, says no age. You have to be a dummy to get married. Sounds about right. Derek, age eight, how can you tell if two people are married? This is my favorite. Just see if they're yelling at the same kids. That, <laughs> that might work. <laughs> you got a common problem they're working on, right? You know, the fact is you cannot be happy and successful biblically when your marriage has fallen into shambles. Uh, This is the number one relationship that God has entrusted to us. And therefore, we should be very careful uh, to obey Scripture's uh, commands. Paul has some sections in his letters which scholars call house codes. Ephesians 5 falls into one of those, is one of those examples, falls into that category. Another example would be in Colossians chapter 3. But these house codes are given to show Christians who want to live according to the uh, word of God, how to perpetuate their faith and build a well-ordered home life. And so that's where we are, is looking at one of these house code sections in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, what Paul is about to tell us, I'm just going to tell you on the front end, what Paul is about to tell us is going to be, maybe, maybe, the most astonishing thing that you have ever heard about marriage. And some of you, frankly, you're not going to like it. Others of you, you're going to think it's highly impractical. But I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. Once we get this and allow it to become ingrained within us, it will be revolutionary to how we view and live out marriage relationships. Now, remember what I just said. Paul prefaces this house code section in your verse 21 by saying that we ought to be submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So he gives the general rule. This is sort of a header in the Greek text. It's in present tense. It's meaning this is you are to keep on submitting to one another. And then he's going to highlight how that happens between a man and a woman, how we submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So that's what we're going to get into. So, so here's the first point, and uh, I don't want you to look ahead, but I want, you to, I want you to get the outline. I want you to write this first thing down. And the reason I want you to write it down, not just because there's a fill in the blank, but because this is an incredibly difficult teaching. And you're going to read this, and you're going to say, David, I didn't come here for this. This doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know how this works. But I promise you, this is Paul's teaching, and it's revolutionary, and he's going to work hard to get us to understand it. Write this down because it may be two weeks from now before it really starts to sink in. It took me, once I understood it, about a year to wrap my head around it. And this is the first thing. Number one, God created marriage as a symbol of the church. 
And some of you are like, what? And some of you are like, how does that help? Let's allow Paul to play that out. Look down in your verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Do any of you have a good reference Bible? If you do, you'll notice where you have the notation of verse 31. You may have a little letter or a number or something that directs you to your reference column. And in the reference column, it's going to give you an Old Testament reference, correct? Is anybody looking there? And what's your Old Testament reference? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. All right. So what Paul is doing is he's quoting from the beginning of the Bible. Indeed, he's quoting, listen to me from the creation of man and woman for one another. And he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. All right, is everybody with me? Now watch what Paul does with that in your verse 32. Hey, everybody. Paul just quoted this verse, verse 31. Now he's going to apply it and give us theology about it In verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, that is marriage, refers to Christ and his church. (laughs) So I didn't make number one up. (laughs) This is Paul's doctrinal point. That in reality, God created marriage as a symbol of, of the union between Jesus and his church. Now, why does that matter to us? Look at your verse 32 again and think about that little word, it, where Paul says it. What's the it refer to? Your verse 31, where he quotes Genesis 2, talking about marriage. Marriage, it, refers to Christ and the church. All right, so what that means is that the highest meaning, the ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Jesus and his people on display. That's why marriage exists. Time out. What am I saying? What I'm saying is your relationship with one another is meant to show the world the kind of love Jesus has for his people. Is that a lofty ideal? Is that a lofty standard? Are we starting to see how that can apply to our lives and become living theology? Let's see it played out. So if you're married now, that's why you're married. If you hope to be married someday, this should be your ideal, your dream. The ultimate thing that we can say about marriage is that it exists to display It exists to display God. So this is highly important. So let this sink in for just a minute. God created marriage as a symbol of Jesus' relationship with his own people. All right, let's just sit on that a minute. Let's take a breath before we move on. I'm going to go down a little cul-de-sac for just a second, okay, while we're sitting on that. I'll come back out in just a minute, and we'll have a little side discussion about the church itself as it relates to this this idea. About 15 years ago, there was a big controversy in our brotherhood about whether or not we should be talking about the church in terms of 
It's an institution, or is the church a family? And I always ask my class, what's the, class, what's the answer to that question? What's the answer to this question? Is the church an institution, or is it a family? It's yes. Yes is the answer. It was both an, an organism, an organization instituted by Jesus Christ. It is an institution. But don't you ever, ever get in your mind that the church is not a family. And, and let, me just, let me just give us some, some thoughts about that. Jesus himself, in a revolutionary move, get this, in, in, in faithful Judaism, you, when you prayed to God, you did not pray and often call God Father. In fact, in the Old Testament, you can only find God referred to as Father in maybe just a couple of references. Jesus revolutionizes our faith by saying, when you pray, here's how you pray. Our what? Father, which art in heaven. We are taught in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 to think of Jesus not just as Lord, he is that, but also as our elder brother. Question, question. Is that language of family, father, brother? 1 Timothy 5, 1, encourage an older man as you would a father. Younger men as what? Brothers. I got to tell you, over the years, I have been extremely blessed by some of the ladies in our congregations. I tell people, I've had 100 Aunt B's over the years in my life I've been blessed with. And that's because the church is a family unit. 1 Timothy 5, 2, older women entreat them as mothers. Younger women entreat them as sisters in all purity. So the church definitely already has this language of family that's ingrained within it. So let's go back to our number one point. Look at it again where it says, number one, that the church is really intertwined with the idea of marriage. That, that marriage was created to be a symbol showing forth to the world through our love between husband and wife, the love that Jesus has for his people. So the church uses the language of family. The family is symbolic of the church. And understanding this truth, listen to what I'm about to tell you, understanding this truth elevates both the importance of family and the importance of church. It elevates the importance of both. So think about that for a moment. That means the church is not some emotionless institution merely, and it means the family is not some group that God put together so that you wouldn't be lonely throughout life. It has deeper meaning than that. There's more to it than that. Now, if you go to God's original plan for marriage back when he instituted it, there were uh, some thoughts that God put forth between people, and that was that marriage was between one man, one woman, one marriage for life. I believe I understood that when I was about eight years old. It's not all that complicated. And in the Old Testament, there were two exceptions to that standard, and the exceptions were death and adultery. New Testament talks about adultery. Old Testament talks about death. I said that in a class one time, and a student said, well, wait a minute. They had provision for adultery in the Old Testament too, 
And I said, yes, you're right. But the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament was death. <laughs> so there's really only one. <laughs> there's really only one exception in the Old Testament for, for, uh, against this original plan. Now, beyond that... This is important. God's view of marriage is so strong and so powerful and so limited because in the back of God's mind, he has always had this idea that marriage should show forth the love Jesus has for his people. God hates divorce. You ever heard that? Ever heard that verse before? God hates divorce. Why does God feel that way? Well, there are a number of things we could say about it, but part of it is that back in God's mind, Marriage was always meant to show forth the love Jesus has for his people. It would be like God turning his back on his people. It would be unthinkable to him. So marriage is not just about being or staying in what we might call love. It's mainly about telling the truth to the world about the gospel through our marriage. Woo. Are we soaking this in? Are we seeing the thought of marriage be elevated, rising up a little bit? Because through this relationship, we're portraying something about Jesus and his people. All right. So we got that one at number one. That's a hard one. I told you, you might not like it. Some of y'all like this is incredibly impractical. Hang on a minute. Give Paul a chance to make it practical. Because not only does he say what he says in verses 31 and 32 that we just examined, that's actually his conclusion. He builds up to it by building the case. We're doing it in the reverse. I'm giving you Paul's conclusion and then going back and showing you how he builds the case. So look at number two and let's further apply what Paul says. Man, you don't think this won't live in your life. Here we go. Number two, husbands, within the realm of your marriage relationship... You represent Christ. How you doing on that, fellas? How you living up to that standard, men? I want to say something to you that in regards, as it regards a biblical marriage, you cannot go through life as what we might call a rogue male. That is, a man who will not allow himself to be transformed by the word of God. If that is you, if you know somebody like that, those people do not need to get married. Marriage is God's invention. And it is meant to be run according to God's viewpoint of it. And if you have a man who will not bend the knee in obedience to scripture, he doesn't need to get married. Because here's the standard. You ready for it? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How, Paul? How are we to love our wives? As what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't know about you. For years I read through that and I was like, I just went on the next verse. Got to read through that. Husbands, love your wives. Got it. I said I do. Did you? 
I told her I loved her the day I married her. <laughs> you ever heard that one? Why should I keep having to tell her? She should remember. <laughs> I got it. Husbands, love your wives. I'm good. Wait a minute. What did he say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. All right. So hear this out. The Bible says the man does not exercise his headship to please himself. Woo! How do I know that? Verse 25, we're to love as Christ loved the church. What did Jesus do for the church? Did he live according to the church in a selfish fashion and demand to be served? Or was it the other way? <laughs> Did he come into the world and wash feet? Did he come into the world and serve his disciples? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed and died for her. So it is the husband's job. Are you listening? It's the husband's job to always put the needs and desires of his wife ahead of his own. Because if anything communicates that to us, the Garden of Gethsemane does. That Jesus put the need of his bride ahead of his own. Father, if it be your will, what? Take this cup from me, but let me bow in obedience. Not my will, but what? Yours be done. Fellas, are we listening? We get into this section of Scripture, we want to talk a whole lot about women submit. And we never camp out on this. I promise you, you behave this way, you'll have a woman who adores you. You make that wife the queen of your home, you can't even imagine the relationship that will flourish. See, love's a tricky thing. In our culture, you know, you watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, and you're like, wow, that's, hey, all right, that's love. Eh. <laughs> Scripturally, biblical love involves concern, it's self-giving, it's active, and includes deep affection. Love is not merely a feeling of affection. Watch this. It is the consistent wish for the other person's ultimate good. So how are you liking this so far? You're not liking it probably, are you? Fellas, are you not liking it? Are you liking it? This is deep theology via the Apostle Paul. I didn't create this. I didn't come up with it. This is Paul's blueprint. It's a heavy teaching. It's a hard thing to obey. So husbands and wives, you do not... Get engaged in a marriage relationship to primarily please your own wishes and desires. You have actually signed up for something far greater. And by seeking the joy of your spouse, by living according to this biblical command, you're actually also seeking out your own joy, whether you realize it or not. So devote yourself with all your heart to the holy joy of your spouse and you will find you're actually living towards your own joy, just as the, Jesus did with his bride. All right, so that's number one. Y'all like, man, that took a long time. God created marriage as a symbol of the church. Number two, husbands represent Christ. And number three, wives 
represent followers of Christ. And over and over again in Scripture, what do we run into? This language that the church is the bride of Christ. See, we've been reading this stuff for years, and we, you know, at least in my perspective, I never put all this together until I sat down and really tried to study through this. So, so here's, here's what Paul says as we apply this overarching teaching here in Ephesians 5. Look in your verse 25. He says, wives, submit, idios, means, it's a Greek word that simply means sort of a ranking. And I, w- I want to talk a little bit about that in a second. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. See, once again, he's making this connection to Jesus and the church. Verse 23, for the husband is the kephale of the wife, the leader, the one out front, the example setter, the shepherd, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So here's what a wife is to do. You encourage him to be the point man. You fellows, any of y'all ever serve in the military, know what a point man is? It's the guy leading. He's out front. He's the brave one. There should not be a man who names the name of Christ at this congregation whose wife has to get on him about coming to worship. Because it is your job to be the point man. It is your job to be the representative of Christ in this relationship. You're to set the standard. You're to show the world through your servant love to your spouse what the gospel's all about. That's what Paul is teaching here. That's why it's revolutionary. So, so what Paul is doing is, is far different. Did y'all ever watch <laughs> this show? Bam, to the moon. Hey, guess what? This is, this is great comedic effect for the time, but can I tell you the truth? It's not a biblical reflection. Wives, you're not a doormat. You were never meant to be. You're always meant to be the queen of the home. And if a husband is doing what he should be doing, which is the whole point of Paul's text, verse 22 is not the point of Paul's text. Verse 22 depends on Paul's point in the text. Are y'all following me? Because wives submitting absolutely depends on men leading like Jesus. I'm a... Huge fan of boxing, boxing history. Uh, one of my favorites is Jack Dempsey. Jack Dempsey, uh, at the prime of his career, 1919, about 1926, he held the world title. Uh, if you were to look in your newspaper at results of sports, sporting events, you would have emblazoned across the headline, Jack Dempsey wins, defends title in the sixth. And down here in the corner, Babe Ruth hits his 23rd home run. He was that popular that he overshadowed Babe Ruth, those of you who are baseball fans. And one time his wife was asked, what's it like to be married to a fighter? I love her reply. She said, I didn't marry a fighter. I married a champion. And I want to tell you, every man, every husband wants his wife to be that way towards him. 
to stand up for him to other people. To not gossip about him with her friends, but to elevate him. And that's the thing about it. Wives, elevate and brag about your husband. This is what we signed up for. Men, put her on a pedestal, treat her as the queen of the home. Why? Because, as I said before, it is always your job to elevate the needs of the wife ahead of your own. Now, a man can only lead as a wife allows him to follow. Women, if you do not respect the man in your life, marriage will not work. And the two of you, what you are to, to really be working towards is what the Old Testament calls chesed. Chesed is the second most important word in the whole Old Testament. And it has to do with covenant love. I'll talk a little bit more about that in the second session. But a covenant love where you are saying you are an indispensable companion. That's actually the meaning of the word, by the way. When God created woman, have you got a translation that says, I will create one that is a help meet? Have you, have you got one that says that? That translates the Hebrew word ezer, which means an indispensable companion. Someone who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. How do you like that definition, fellas? Someone who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. The same word is not just used for for the wife, it's also used of God. Because God at times does things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. I live in a household of four women. I get a reminder every day that I cannot do certain things correctly. <laughs> that I need help constantly. All right. Number one, God created marriage as a symbol of the church. Number two, husbands represent Christ. Number three, wives represent followers of Christ. And let's play out what Paul says Verse 27 and following as we come close to the end. So that he might present the church to himself. Paul, why are you talking about the church? I thought we were talking about marriage. Well, if you've been tracking, you already know the answer to that question. Present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it you eat don't you you cherish it just as christ does the church because we are members of his body so what does this mean very practically your marriage is your first ministry you have a ministry to one another this is what i meant when i said at the beginning some of you are really going to like this some of you are going to hate it some of you, it's going to take a couple of weeks because it took me a year. And uh, it's powerful. It changes our perspective. Many years ago, I encountered a family that uh, was going through a divorce. They had two kids, and I'll end with this so you can take a sigh of relief, okay? Uh, the daughter in the family who was kind of on the outskirts of it, she saw what was happening. She decided, this is astonishing to me, and I've always kept this in my notes, she decided that she was going to write her dad a letter, but make a bit of a parable out of it. 
The reason being, the dad had found a new woman in his life. In a nice car for a long time. The kind of car that has all the extras on the inside, not a scratch on the outside. But over the years, the car has developed some problems. Many things need fixing, but none of them are major. With a little work, it could still run for years and be a great car. And since we got the car, Brian and I have been in the back seat while you and mom have been up front. We feel secure with you driving and with mom beside you. But last month, mom was at the wheel driving at nighttime. We had just turned the corner to our house and suddenly we all saw another car out of control heading straight for us. Mom tried to swerve out of the way, but the other car still smashed into us. The thing is, Dad, just before being hit, we could see that you were driving the other car, and there was another woman seated next to you. We were rushed to the emergency ward. When we asked where you were, no one knew, and we're still not really sure where you are, if you're hurt or if you need help. Mom was really hurt. One of her broken ribs almost pierced her heart. Brian was covered with broken glass. His arm was shattered. He's not speaking. There have been times since that night that I wondered if any of us would make it. The doctors say I'll need lots of therapy on my leg, but I sure wish that it was you, Dad, that was helping me instead of them. The pain is so bad, and what's even worse is that we all miss you very much. Every day we wait to see if you're going to visit us in the hospital, and every day you don't come, and I know it's over. My heart would explode with joy if somehow I could look up and see you walk into my room. At night when the hospital is really quiet, they wheel me and Brian into mom's room and we talk about you, about how we all loved riding with you, how we wish you were here now. Are you all right? Are you hurting from the wreck? Do you need us? Like we need you. That was powerful. I'm happy to report he did repent and they underwent long term counseling and they salvaged their family. And I think it's because of this letter. And I want to say to you make the biblical view of your marriage, the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life. Live for it and die for it every day. Let's pray about it. Father in heaven, we thank you for this session we've been able to spend together gathered around your word. How astonishing your word is to us as it feeds us, as it reveals to us, 
We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for giving us this template. Would you help us to live it, to make it real in our lives? We love you. We ask a special blessing on those present here today as you gather them unto yourself. I pray that you would strengthen their relationships. It is in the name of Jesus and no other that we pray. Amen.